0: So, thank, thanks very much, Jason, and again, thank you for uh, inviting me. It's such a, uh, a privilege to be able to do this when we're here in the fall because it gives us a chance to meet so many uh, members of Central, which is a, and Central has become our favorite church. Now, don't tell my people back at Grace Presbyterian Church in California I said that. Um, so, th- this topic, this is my fourth uh, of these, and Jason suggested the, the uh, subjects that I'll be speaking on, and this one is frankly a little intimidating because of him. I mean, here we are, and just, what was it, three weeks ago I think it was that Jason delivered an, just such an outstanding sermon on the very topic that he asked me to speak on this morning. So it, it's a, this is, makes it uh, a little bit difficult because If I say the same thing that he did, you'll think I'm just plagiarizing. And if I say anything different from what he did, you'll think I'm a heretic. Uh, So maybe I should just sit down before I put my foot in it. Uh, It's also an intimidating topic because I don't think there's any one answer to any of this. This This is a very big question, and... Uh, different Christians over the ages have approached it in different ways, and I'm sure everybody in this room uh, approaches it somewhat differently, so please understand this is just one guy's opinion <laughs> ab- about the topic. Um, but the way I'm going to organize this, and I, I may have to talk fast because I have a lot to say, but I'm going to make three points And I want to warn you that the three points that I'm making may sound contradictory. And so let me tell you what they are first, and then we'll see if they make sense together. But the first point uh, is that in our democratic republic, uh, people of faith have every right as citizens uh, to express their views and to press for public policies based upon their religious convictions, no less than anyone else. In other words, this idea that the separation between church and state is offended by religious participation in politics is false. So that's my first point. My second point is that for the most part, except in clear cases of moral urgency, the church should stay out of politics. Not because of anything having to do with our constitutional order. It does not offend our constitutional order, the separation of church and state, or any principles of liberal government for churches to participate. They're free to do that. right? But for reasons internal to the church, I think it's mostly wise not to become political. And then my third point is that Christians should be political, and they should carefully think about how their political principles conform Uh, to the teachings of the Bible because it is not so that religion and politics are different subject matters. They do uh, relate uh, to each other and I want to commend to you a slogan uh, that was uh, popular among abolitionists in the 1840s fighting against slavery and the slogan is this pray as you vote and vote as you pray. So, those three things may sound a bit uh, contradictory or inconsistent. Let's talk about uh, uh, each of them. Um, the first has to do with our rights as equal citizens of this pluralistic republic of ours, right? And I think there is nothing in our constitutional tradition, and this is a—that's you know, nothing—is a strong word for me. You know, I often see. You know, shades of gray and things. There is nothing in our constitutional tradition which has any re- that offers any reason why Christians should refrain from speaking their minds, advocating what they believe in, using religious language if they wish. Right. So, uh, the I want to talk about constitutional law. I want to talk about history, and I want to talk about. Uh, philosophy. Constitutional law first. Is there some violation of the separation of church and state? We talked about the separation of church and state last time I spoke to you, and you may remember that the First Amendment is phrased as follows. Congress, meaning the government, shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. It is a limitation on the government that keeps the government from controlling religion. It says nothing about uh, what individual citizens can do, and it is it does not present per, it does not impose any limitations on what churches uh, can do. It is a restraint on government, not on the church. Um, and <clears throat> there's a very deep parallel between freedom of the press and freedom of religion because both the press meaning not just newspapers but written materials in general right both the press and churches and some other associations as well are the seed beds of democracy these are the places in which people think about ideas uh, share values form opinions and then and, and try to persuade people tried to persuade one another, right? And and in both cases, we want the government not to control those things. Think about the various authoritarian regimes around the world. Two things that they almost always do is that they control the media, right? The TV station is going to be a government-run TV station. Newspapers are going to be under their thumb. Very important that they control the press they also control religion and that's what the established church was historically it was government control of the church not because the government wanted to promote religion and establishment of religion as we talked about last time isn't about promoting religion it's about controlling religion and using religion for uh, 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 for political ends so both freedom of the press and and freedom of religion are about preventing government control of these important institutions for the inculcation uh, of ideas. They are not, uh, it makes no more sense to say that the separation of church and state prevents churches from speaking out on matters of public uh, uh, concern than it does to say freedom of the press prevents newspapers from having editorials. It just it isn't right, it, it, it makes no sense. Uh, Word about history. I told one of my favorite anecdotes, was it last time, I think, where uh, Madison was running for the House of Representatives for the first time, and he, made, he issued a public statement to the Reverend George Eve, remember him, of the Rapidon Baptist Church, who then spoke long in support of Madison. Well that's religious participation in politics. We would not have a First Amendment separation between church and state if it hadn't been for the Baptists who were participating as such uh, in uh, politics. And it's so it has been for our, the entire history of the United States. Um, every important social movement, and by that I want to stress bad ones as well as good ones, Religious participation in politics has not always been on the right side of things, but every major movement in American politics of any real moral significance has been led by uh, people speaking out uh, sp- expressly uh, in the name of religion. Abolitionism, for sure, right? William Lloyd Garrison's uh, 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 newspaper, The Liberator, had a cross up in the masthead on every uh, on every issue right the quakers were the first major group in america to begin abolitionist uh, agitation but it was actually the descendants of the new england puritans who really were the backbone of the abolitionist uh, uh, movement <clears throat> uh, prohibition labor reform social welfare civil rights remember the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King. You know, what reverend, right? I like to call him that because it reminds people. And do you remember the name of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King's organization? It was the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, right? Uh, uh, The Movement for the Protection of the Unborn. And I'm just leaving out most of the others. This idea that somehow religious leadership and religious ideas should be kept out of the public square is is completely contrary, not just to the language of our Constitution, Congress shall make no law, but to the entire history of the the republic. Now, a word about philosophy, because it's very popular uh, in academic circles, uh, to argue based upon the writings, especially of the uh, political philosopher John Rawls, for whom I have great respect, uh, that all uh, law, all politics and legislation uh, have to be based upon secular reason rather than faith, and the reason for that Rawls says is that matters of faith are uh, are not accessible to anyone else, and so demo- and democratic politics is a matter of mutual respect for other citizens, we have to base our arguments upon things that are accessible. You can't have sort of secret truths and, uh, uh, and base a uh, political argument on that. Now, I think that that is probably false even in the abstract, but certainly false as, um, uh, as imposed upon the religious-secular divide. Because, first of all, many secular ideologies are not accessible either. You think about identity politics, in which people say, well, because I'm a woman, I can speak on things men don't understand. They can't understand because they're male. Or racial issues, right? These are, these, there's, oh, you, you, you aren't uh, this race, and therefore you can't really participate fully in in uh, uh, discourse on these topics. That is to say inaccessible, right? That's to say we can argue for particular public policies on the basis of matters that other people simply cannot understand, right? And it's further argued, Rawls doesn't himself argue this, but some of his uh, followers argue that religion is particularly divisive, right, and prone to fanaticism or extremism when in politics. And it certainly is true that that can be so. There have been plenty of divisive and fanatical and extreme voices on the religious side. But of course, there have been plenty of divisive and extreme and fanatical voices from secular points of view as well. Meanwhile, Religious argument is neither necessarily inaccessible nor necessarily divisive and extreme. Not accessible, I think, of our Roman Catholic friends whose participation in politics is largely on the basis of natural law theory. Well, natural law is based on the idea that uh, we can discern by reason God's order for the universe. That's natural and we discern it by reason and they argue from that. There's nothing inaccessible about that. Uh, Some people may not agree with it, but we can't exclude ideological perspectives because we don't agree with them. uh, Keynesian economics is an ideological perspective. I don't agree with it, but that doesn't mean that there's anything wrong with people arguing in the economic realm on the basis of Keynesian economics. Uh, They're free to do that. Bottom line is that in a pluralistic republic, the reason we are all equal citizens is not that we all agree with what's enacted. We don't. It's that we all have an equal right to express ourselves based upon our convictions and to try to persuade our fellow citizens. And our fellow citizens have every right to disagree with us on the basis of their own uh, uh, convictions, whatever they uh, uh, happen to be. So that's my first point. So go to it. My second point is don't go to it, or at least be very careful about exercising this as the church. When I speak of the church, I don't mean just the institution of the church. I also, I mean, I believe that the church is the people of God. It's not just you know the the corporation that is you know the Central Presbyterian Church is a corporation. I don't just mean the corporation. I mean the people. So I, we are the church when we speak in the name of the church. So that's what I'm talking about. And I think we need to be at least cautious about this for several reasons. Um, the uh, uh, I think because I think that the mixture of a, a too close connection between uh, faith. And politics is uh, d- is divides the church and ultimately corrupts the church. Divides the church first. Um, do we want to come to church on Sunday and only have people of our political persuasion sitting next to us? There are a lot of churches like that, right? Where you would be very uncomfortable if you didn't share the view. I grew up in such a church. I grew up in a very left-liberal Presbyterian church in Kentucky. My minister was a McGovern delegate to the 1972 uh, Democratic Convention, right? Now, some of you know I'm not a left-wing person, right? And so it, it was kind of an assault on my senses to hear Sunday after Sunday uh, sermons which just presuppose that of course we all you know agree with the platform of the left wing of the Democratic Party, and I could easily have been driven away from this, uh, but many uh, but but it goes the same way right with there are plenty of churches in America where you would feel very uncomfortable if you 're a liberal Democrat, and you go in and you hear all about uh, you know, uh, how terrible Obamacare is or whatever it is that they talk about. I am so – one of the reasons I love this church is I haven't heard a a partisan word come out of Jason's mouth or anyone else's mouth who speaks uh, uh, for the church, and that is so of our church in in California uh, as well. I rejoice in the fact that the church – and now really I am talking about the Assembly of Believers – the church is one of the places in my life where I have close personal relationships with people of different political beliefs, cultural preferences, professions, races, and so forth. And we are, I think, that the church can be a model of what diversity really means, unlike the way universities behave, but the way uh, diversity. What diversity is is can always be stronger when you have something that hi- ties you together. When the most important thing in your life you have in common with someone, it enables you to understand and celebrate the differences uh, uh, that come along uh, with that. And I think that's such a precious thing. And I think that too close identification between uh, a church and a political movement. Necessarily is going to divide us and make us less than the full body uh, of Christ. Just a few weeks ago, I, I had the opportunity of speaking to the Yale Law School Christian Fellowship. About 20 law students there, very diverse group, very you know, smart kids, they're very eager, also very worried and not knowing really kind of adrift. Uh, they need... They don't know, really. It's it's so hard in the modern uh, university to know, you know, how to be an open Christian. What do you do? And uh, afterwards, uh, a couple of them uh, who happened to be of minority race uh, came up to me and were asking me more questions about what I had been saying. And it turns out that they had attended a national meeting of the Christian Legal Society student organization, and... Uh, there was so much there of a kind of political nature that they didn 't they felt alienated from uh, from the organization so i 'm talking now to the leadership i 've been a long standing member of that organization and talking to the leadership about the importance of making sure that that isn 't so because um, especially when you talk about law, a number of the legal questions of, that involve religion right now have to do with, you know, bakers who don't approve of the same-sex marriage and things of that sort. And, it, and I, I fear that it's creeping over into right-wingism in general, and that's not a good thing for, um, uh, for the church. Uh, so divide, division is a problem, but I think an even worse problem is corruption. And by corruption, I don't mean taking money. What I mean is uh, compromising on your principles in order to achieve a different kind of objective. Because the essence of political action is coalition building. And if the church is going to be a political actor, it's going to become part of a coalition. And that coalition is going to stand for things that we don't stand for. And... I fear and predict and confidently predict that a very political church is going to end up subordinating its principles to the needs of political action. And let me give you a statistic that I just stumbled upon in the last month that I find really sad. And it is this. that uh, This is, comes from a Pew uh, research poll. Uh, that in 2011 uh, this, uh, the, the poll is of all kinds of Americans but then it breaks it down uh, and white evangelical Americans is one of the categories and that's the category I'm going to talk about um, in 2011 white evangelical uh, uh, Christians uh, thirty, uh, and there's a question can an official who commits an immoral act in private life uh, be uh, entrusted, be trusted uh, to uh, behave ethically in public life. That's the question. And in 2011, 30% of white evangelicals said yes. 70% said no. Right. October 2016, week, just a few weeks before the presidential election, 72% said yes. 28% said no. Well, what happened between 2011 and 2016? Right. Um, I don't really think that the relationship between ethics, pub, private and public ethics, changed. I don't think that the teaching of the church changed. But I do think the political demands uh, uh, changed. And this m- note is even before the events of the last few weeks uh, in, in, uh, in Alabama. And you know, I just—it just seems to me quite clear that people, Christians, are uh, pulling in their sails on things that really matter for Christianity because of um, of politics. Um, and maybe the most fundamental thing about corruption, I think, is this: that. In the end, I think when you see uh, religious groups as such participating in politics, that it turns out that they are using religion, they're using their status as religious people uh, for the purpose of advancing a political cause. It is not that they are conforming their politics to their religion, it's that they're conforming their religion to their politics. And that is, I think, fundamentally the corrupting thing. Now I don't want to exaggerate this. I do think that there are times uh, when the church should speak out as a church. I think that they are rare, but I think that they happen. I think we should be very careful about them, make sure that we understand you know, all of the issues and so forth. But then when the church speaks out, maybe people will listen. But um, I remember, uh, I don't know, some years ago, uh, I sent away, this is when I was a member of the uh, PCUSA, the mainline Presbyterian church, and I sent $20 to headquarters to get a book of the lobbying positions that the PCUSA takes in the United States Congress. It was like this thick. You know, they take pick positions on things like, you know, foreign aid to Taiwan and, and agricultural price supports and, uh, and so forth. Who would pay any attention to them on <laughs> topics of that sort? I don't and, – and I think if the – <laughs> if the church were more careful about when it speaks, maybe when it does speak, it would carry a little bit more uh, more weight as well. Now, the third point. Uh, so I've said that we have every freedom to participate, uh, and then I'm saying we should be cautious about it. But I don't want to be cautious in the. F- I, I I my third point is that is that we as Christians. We need to ensure that our faith is in control of our political lives. Uh, God, if if, if we believe anything, we believe that God is in command of everything in our lives. That means we don't compartmentalize. We don't say we're Christians for some purposes, but, oh, and in my profession I can behave unchristianly. That's why I feel so much for the baker in that case that we talked about. We, we, you, if you're a Christian, you're a Christian in everything, right? And that includes your behavior in the voting booth and in the uh, and, and in the public square. There is no wall of separation between um, believe between believers and citizens. You know, we're not we don't have some sort of wall of separation within us. Uh, uh, one of the biblical uh supports for a kind of separation right is the is the famous uh render under Caesar Have you ever thought about this so render under Caesar the things that are Caesar's and under God the things that are God that means that government Caesar is not the same right, as God there is a separation, but reflect upon this. Caesar's control is over certain things, such as taxation. That was the question: Do you pay taxes to Caesar? Caesar has every right to some taxation. Caesar has all kinds of. There's this Caesar has a lot of importance in this world, but render under God the things that are God's. God has everything, right? So Caesar has some things, but God has everything. And that means that in our political lives, we need to be uh, very uh careful we need to we need to make sure that we are not uh, that we are conforming our politics to our uh uh to our uh religious understanding uh, uh, again, to quote that those abolitionists, because I think this is so powerful, you know pray as you vote and vote as you pray right? I think that's very good advice let me say some subordinate, second order things about that. Uh, The first is that that doesn't mean you have to be obnoxious, right? (laughs) Um, Darn it. (laughs) Uh, It doesn't mean you wave your Bible in people's faces. It doesn't mean you accuse people of being, you know, of going to hell or whatever it happens to be. I think that we... Uh, it, we're both going to be more effective but also more importantly we're going to be more uh, Christ-like if we talk to people the way we would like to be talked to ourselves which is to say to use respectful language to try to seek common ground right? To, so whenever we can in pluralistic environments we should use pluralistic language and pluralistic arguments um, I not infrequently talk about the topic of abortion um, in a mixed crowd. I might talk about religious I might quote the bible in, in a crowd like this but in but i don 't it 's not necessary right. I talk about the science of embryology when I talk about uh, abortion i 'm going to cite uh, medical textbooks i 'm not going to be citing the bible and the and the and and I try to use language which people are going to be able to um uh to identify with and I recommend uh that and um and and then a second point which really kind of annoys me about a lot of christian participation in politics is is it's important not to mistake good intentions for good results i think a lot of times we hear people say things like um oh uh you know we shouldn't go to you know do not make war for example make peace not war well that obviously there's some christian belief in that but if there's a tyrant who is brutalizing some fellow human beings to say make don't make war means allow the tyrant to carry on brutalizing people and I do not actually believe that that is a consequence which uh, which Jesus would smile on. I mean, he doesn't have any, there's no particular uh, uh, verses in Jesus' own words uh, about that. But so often it's like uh, it, as long as a policy pretends that it's going to, it, 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 it portrays itself as being in favor of, say, the poor or of good things, uh, that's what matters. Uh, It doesn't really matter whether the policy works properly. And I think that Christians need to be informed about issues, about matters like economics and international relations and whatever it is to make sure that we're not just advocating things that sound good. We need to be advocating things that actually do good. And those are two uh, uh, very different things, and I think Christians are particularly prone to um, fall into this sort of gospel of niceness in which if you if, if, if it sounds like it 's it's nice and soft and good uh, that that 's all you look to rather than asking, well what are the actual consequences for behavior for incentives for uh, for the way society uh, uh, turns uh, turns out so I mean just as an personal example i don't i know people in this room and in the church as a whole you know differ on what i'm about to say you know but i honestly believe based upon my uh, study of economics that capitalism is the system which has done the most to relieve poverty around the world in the united states and around the world right i believe that and yet of course socialism sounds nicer Right? but i don 't think socialism works nicer right it 's capitalism actually does a better job, and I would rather advocate for policies that are going to going to lift the poor rather than policies that are going to uh, result in mass starvation. Um, I know that 's a controversial thing. Uh, Another thing, just to emphasize about the value of Christian and other religious participation in politics, is that I think I don't think that the Bible provides very many prescriptions for what you know for what we should do. It's not about that. That's uh, and and but it does teach us that we should love our neighbors as ourselves, and that I as a political principle the way I translate that is to say we should in our in our political lives uh, strive for the common good and not just for things that are going to benefit ourselves and uh, I think if more people did that if more people voted the way they pray we would be a better uh, nation for it right but um, uh, and, and so you know, an emphasis upon the common good but we shouldn't expect everybody, every Christian, to draw the same conclusion about what the common good is. That's uh, uh, that's not going to happen. But we can, I think, hold ourselves mutually accountable for saying that whatever our positions are really ought to be grounded in some sort of understanding of the common good. And actually, I've already then stepped on my last point here, which is... Uh, Which is, don't expect all Christians to uh, to agree about matters of politics. We don't, and that's actually a good thing. It's not a bad thing. Uh, And I have a concrete suggestion. So I see John and a couple of other leaders of the church here. So here's a suggestion for something that I've never seen it done, but I think this might be a good thing for the church to do. Um, Let's have a night called something like let's be political call it that something like that in which we invite we invite members of the congregation to ex- to give a statement about what their general political beliefs are and why they think they're connected to Christianity but make it make it clear at the beginning that this is not about trying to reach a consensus. It's not about trying to decide what is the right position. I think this will do two things. One is it is good for us to be forced every so often to think through what is the connection between my political beliefs and, and, uh, and my religious beliefs because we can so easily just sort of fall into... A set of ideas. It's good to be reflective about what those connections are, but secondly, and maybe even more importantly, it's so that we can hear our fellow Christians uh, sincerely explaining why a set of political conclusions that are, might be quite different from our own uh, can be seen as sincerely as as, uh, as consistent with the Christian faith. And so that we can understand that the thing that we hold together is what's important. And yes, we may disagree. There are going to be some you know, social justice advocates in the church. There are going to be some social conservatives in the church. There are going to be some libertarians in the church. There are going to be some environmentalists in the church. There are going to be some capitalists in the church. Right? And it would be good for us to hear the connections being drawn, because I think it would help us to be uh, a body of Christ which is both united in what matters and what we're united about, but also uh, to be uh, thoughtful and diverse in uh, what we are uh, not united about. Uh, And so anyway, just to passing suggestion for the uh, and I and I think there's a, I think bad idea we should debate this idea too we'll have a dis- first we should have a disagreement over whether we even to do this which would, right. so um, so if you if you don't take away anything else I hope you'll take away the abolitionist slogan right uh, so uh, vote as you pray and pray as you vote